Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. God speaks to us. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of God to us. Here we go. There we are. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Hey, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you're here and you're like, I don't really know where I stand with the church or with Jesus or with uh, some of the faith claims that we're exploring today, man, we are so honored by your presence here. You don't have to believe what we believe to be a part of, of our community. We want you to be here. We're actually honored by your presence. So just ask questions and, and observe and uh, observe and dialogue and uh, explore. And we really do believe that there's good news to be had uh, with the claims of Christianity. So thanks for being with us this morning. Man, I would imagine that a passage like what we just read this morning stirs up a lot of things in a lot of our hearts this morning. And I just want to very clearly say from the, from the get-go of the sermon that this is not a sermon about homosexuality. Uh, the Bible speaks very clearly about sex and about our bodies and about God's design and his purpose behind both of those things. And if you know anything about our culture here at Frontline, you know that we're not shy of stepping into hard or controversial passages. Uh, hint, hint, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, right? If we were afraid of hard things, we would avoid this entire book. Um, and it's not because we love controversy or love hard things. It's because we believe that the Bible offers us something good and true and beautiful. We believe that God's ways and his word and his design is full of hope and full of life. And so that's why we like to speak to things like this. And the reality is, as a church, we've talked about this in the past. So if you want to find a sermon that's devoted to that topic, you can find it on our website. Or if you've got questions or want to know more or want some helpful resources, then we would be more than honored to load you down with a ton of helpful resources. But here's what I want you to hear me say. Here's what I want you to hear me say. That when it comes to uh, sex and sexuality, there's no such thing as being sexually straight. We're actually all sexually broken. We're all sexually bent, and sin has marred every part of us, including our sexuality. So if you're here and you struggle with, with sex or sexuality, hey, can I just say to you, join the club, and we're with you, and we want to help process. If you've got questions, if you need help navigating the place that you find yourselves in, here's what's beautiful about the family of God is that we have people from all different types of sexual orientations that are actually laying down their, who, who they are, everything about them, they're laying down, including their own bodies, 
to the authority of Jesus and his historic teaching on this issue. And so you're not going to find from us any bit of shame. You're not going to find from us uh, any bit of confusion as you process who you are or where you're at or the ways that you struggle, because we actually all struggle. So I want to say welcome to you. Would you please reach out to us? Would you please ask? And I want you to hear this really clearly, that Paul is not singling out homosexuality in our passage today. There are actually three words that are used to describe sexual sin, and two of them are a reference to heterosexual sin. And so what's happening here is not Paul dealing with the singling out issue. You got to remember in Corinth that there was uh, these sacred uh, prostitution places that were set up all over the city of Corinth in the temple of Epaphrodite and other temples across the, the city where people would go and experience both homosexual and heterosexual prostitution and worship of the God at the time. And this was just in the city. This was the way that the city lived. This was the way that the city functioned. And that's well and good. The problem in Corinth was that the ways of the city had become the ways of the church. That what was inside of the city had crept its way in the church. And now you have people that are claiming Jesus, but are living just like the city and not like the way of Christ. And that's what Paul is doing. So far from Paul elevating out or singling homosexual sin as outside the parameters of the kingdom of God, what he's actually doing is saying, all of us, all of us apart from the grace of God are outside of the parameters of the kingdom of God unless God himself intervenes. So that's what's happening in the text today. With that in mind, what I want to do is I want to just take a second and pray for us, and then we're going to jump in with verse 9. So Father, would you meet us today? Would you meet us in your word uh, thinking about that picture that you gave someone this morning as we were praying, that your word would go forth like fire, that it would reveal and it would expose and it would convict and it would bring uh, more and more of the Holy Spirit's presence into our lives. Would you come and would you move? I don't assume that I have anything particularly helpful to say today, but we trust your word and we wanna hear from you. We wanna sit under this. We wanna be shaped by you. So would you come and would you shape your people today? I pray especially for my friends in the room that are far from you. God, would this passage reveal the hope and the life that we have in Jesus? So come and move today, we pray in your name. Amen. Today, if you travel to Washington, D.C., and you go to the Museum of the Bible, you can find inside of that museum this. It's known as the Slave Bible. I've talked about this in the past, but this is really sad and really fascinating that the slave Bible was used by British missionaries in the 1800s as a mechanism for discipling and evangelizing to the slaves that they had wrongfully brought from various parts of Africa to various parts of Western Europe. And what's so crazy about the slave Bible is not what was added to it or not even the content in it. What's fascinating about this Bible is what's not inside of the Bible, what's missing in terms of its content. It excludes any portion of text in Scripture that speaks of freedom from slavery or liberation or equality. You see, what they didn't want to do was give the slaves a wrong impression that they were somehow equal to them. They didn't want to give the slaves an impression that somehow they had dignity and value and that they should be concerned with their own freedom. So what they did is they went through the entire Bible and they just cut out and removed any section that alluded to equality or freedom or liberation. And if, you, if you've been following Jesus for a long time and if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that that's like a major piece of our story as Christians. 
So here's what happened as a result, that they ended up removing about 90% of the Old Testament and about 50% of the New Testament. So to put it in perspective, the average Bible today in our context has about 1,189 chapters inside of it. Their Bible had 232 chapters in it. So they dramatically reduced Scripture down to something that it wasn't intended to be as a mechanism for converting and educating these slaves that they had wrongfully brought over. Now, don't miss the point. There's a lot that we could say about this, but here's the point. If you asked these British missionaries, are you followers of Jesus, what would their response be? Yeah, we're missionaries. How would we not be followers of Jesus? If you said, do you believe in Scripture, what would they say? Yeah, of course. Like, we love the Word of God. We love the ways of God. We love the Bible. But here's what had happened. These British missionaries had been so seduced by their own cultural moment, the value systems, the ways of their society at the time, that that had become their view, their vision, their ways inside of the church. And now you have British missionaries who are completely deceived into thinking that they're just fine when what they're doing is really damaging and really wicked. And if that can happen to British missionaries in 1800s, and if that can happen to you and I today, then you're going to start to understand a little bit more about what Paul is driving at because that's the thing that happened at Corinth. What had happened at Corinth is that the value systems, the vision of the good life, the, the, the loves of the city, the ways of living of the city, the ways of behaving of the city had crept into the church. And now you have inside of the church people who with one side of their mouth are going to say, we love Jesus, we love his word, we love his ways. But out of the other side of their mouth and with their behavior, there's a tragic gap in how they're actually living. They look just like everybody else in Corinth that isn't a follower of Jesus. And so Paul wants to address that, and he's going to address that today in the three verses that we're looking at. Now, I want to give you some context real quick as we jump in because you need to see the connection between what Paul has said that we looked at last week and what Paul is saying today. So with that in mind, look at verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that word unrighteous in Greek is literally translated wrongdoer. In fact, some of your translations will say wrongdoer. That's a better translation of the word. And here's why this matters. He's saying, don't you know that wrongdoers won't inherit the kingdom of God? And remember what he just said in verse 8, one verse before this. Look at verse 8. He said, but you yourselves wrong, that's the same Greek word used, you wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So what he's saying in today's passage is not a tangent. It's not him totally disconnecting from last week. He's repeating and actually moving forward in his argument. And here's what happened last week if you weren't with us. You had two Christians in the church at Corinth that had a conflict with one another. One Christian had wronged or defrauded another. And that Christian, instead of dealing with his conflict well and dealing with his grievance with maturity, he actually drags that person to the public court system system of Corinth, where there would be a group of magistrates sitting there, and they'd adjudicate on a whole host of issues. And it was this really highly theatrical, highly dramatized event. 
And Paul is saying, hey, don't, don't you get it? Like, you as Christians are not even capable of handling minor disagreements in the church, and yet you are going to be the judges of the entire world. And then he talks about how they're going to inherit all things in the kingdom of God. How can't you just be okay with being wronged a little bit? How can't you be okay with just being defrauded, defrauded a little bit? And what he's trying to fight for last week was for the Christian brother or sister who was wronged to just have a little bit thicker gospel skin. Hey, quit being so easily offended. But in today's text, he's not, he's not disconnecting from that idea. Now what he does is he turns his focus to this brother or sister who wronged the person to begin with. And he says, now let's talk about you. And here's his whole argument today. His whole argument is, hey, hey, church, you're acting just like the city. You're living in unrighteous ways just like the city. You're doing wrong just like people in your city. And I don't want you to be, I do not want you to be deceived about the outcome of people who live that way. Now, he's been asking this rhetorical question uh, several times, and he's going to continue to do this in chapter six. But twice already, he's said this phrase, or do you not know? like this rhetorical question trying to expose them for what's really going on. Here's what he said in verse two. He said, or do you not know that saints will judge the world? Verse three, he says, or do you not know that we are to judge angels? And now in our text today, verse nine, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul's not disconnecting from his argument last week. He's driving that same point home. So with that in mind, here's what we're going to see today. Two different temptations that every single follower of Jesus is going to face and one invitation as a result. So with that in mind, let's jump in verse nine. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So here's the first temptation that every follower of Jesus is gonna face, and it's the temptation towards self-deception. It's the temptation towards self-deception. I want you to look at that passage again, the first two verses, and I want you to think about this question. What's the most jarring phrase in that text. Some of you might point and say, man, I think that phrase about men who practice homosexuality, that's a jarring phrase in our cultural moment. Like, how dare the Bible say something like that? Some of you might point to this line where it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And be like, that's offensive, that's jarring, that's controversial. And here's what I would actually point to is the most jarring verse in this entire text. Do not be deceived. Here's why I say that. Because after 15 years of pastoral ministry, walking with people, and after years and years and years of trying to assess and understand my own heart, here's what I've found to be so crazy, is that every Christian I know, virtually every single follower of Jesus I know, would, would, would say that it is true that there are people out there who profess to be followers of Jesus, and yet their profession holds no weight. In other words, they say that they're followers of Jesus, but they don't actually live for Jesus whatsoever. Their lives are totally disconnected from that. I, I, don't, I don't know if there's any Christian, at least that I'm aware of, that would be willing to go so far as to say that 
no, 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 God will never exclude anybody from the kingdom of God. I think everybody would say, yeah, there are people out there who think that when Jesus returns that they're going to be allowed entrance into the kingdom of God, but they won't be on the great day. I think every single person I know would at least assent to that reality. The problem is this, that we just think that we're not those people. We just think that we're actually fine and we're actually in no danger whatsoever, but those people out there, whoever they may be, those are the people that on the great day may not be allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. This is a problem of self-deception. The problem with being deceived is that you often don't know that you're deceived. And that's the problem. Like you often think that other people's sins are a bigger deal than your own and you just tend to put yourself off the hook again and again and again. So here's the question, how do we know? How do we know that we are among the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God? How how do we know that when Jesus returns to make all things new and fully bring his kingdom, that we will be allowed to be in his kingdom? How do we know that that's true of us? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't just leave us to guess. He actually gives us categories of sin, nine different categories of sin that he wants us to examine. And some of your translations, there will be 10, but in the ESV kind of gets reduced down to nine. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just briefly go through all nine of these with you. And remember, keep in mind, this is dealing with behavior, right? This is dealing with behavior. So here's the first one, the sexually immoral, the sexually immoral. This is anyone who has any form of sexual intercourse outside of the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. Anybody. That's both throughout Scripture, the definition of sexual immorality, and throughout the history of the church. Number two, he mentions idolaters. This is the worship of any gods outside of the Lord. Or in maybe a modern Western context, this is placing anything or anyone as ultimate, as superior in your life, looking for that thing or that person to give you value or worth or significance or identity or security. It's looking to that thing to name and define you outside of God. Number three, he mentions adulterers, married people who have sex with someone other than their spouse. Number four, he mentions homosexual sex. Now, this is not speaking to same-sex attraction, but to the actual action of gay sex. Again, keep in mind, every single thing on this list is behavior-related. This is not talking about indications or, or, I'm sorry, inclinations or orientations or even desires. This is talking about acting out in behavior. Number five, he mentions thieves. These are people who steal what doesn't belong to them. Then he goes on, number six, greedy, the greedy. These are people whose hearts always want more and more and more, are never, ever satisfied, and they act and they make decisions and they live out of their greed. Number seven, he mentions drunkards. These are people who abuse the gift of alcohol by drinking to the point of drunkenness. Number eight, he mentions revilers, literally means the verbal abusers. These are people who criticize others in an overly abusive manner or who spread lies about other people. And then finally, number nine, he mentions swindlers. And this is just very simply people who cheat other people. Now, let me just note a few things about this list before we move on. The first is that this list should not be controversial. This list shows up again and again and again. Every single 
sin mentioned in this list shows up repeatedly all throughout your scriptures. And there's no surprises or curveballs here. Paul is constantly doing this in his letters where he's listing out catalogs of sin, and he's usually doing it in line with what the church was actually wrestling with at the time. Every single thing that he mentions in this list is prohibited numerous times in scripture, Old and New Testament. And most of the things that he lists out even in this text here shows up in the Ten Commandments. So I just want to say like, this shouldn't be controversial to you. This is just a generic basic list of sinful behaviors that Paul is listing out. Second, here's what's really fascinating. Sin that we often regard as really, really serious is placed right next to sin that we often trivialize, especially in the West. So sins like adultery that we would all point to and say, that is a really, really bad sin, shows up in a list right next to being greedy or being a reviler. How interesting is that? Paul's not trying to uh, actually elevate one thing over another. He's giving us real behaviors that you and I struggle with. The third thing that this list does is it actually highlights both the holiness of God and the love of God. What does it tell you about this king that he will not allow these people in his kingdom? It tells you something about his holiness, and I would argue it tells you something significant about his love. Can you imagine what horrible world it would be that God would be ushering in if he allowed people to come in and destroy the good world that he had just brought back to this earth? What God is doing here is not being some puritanical ruler. He's not being mean or angry. What God is doing is saying, I am holy and I am loving. And I actually see that all sin is like a cancer. That sin, by its very nature, unleashes death and dysfunction and destruction both on us as creatures and on God's created world. So this is telling us something about our God and his holiness, and it's telling us something about his love, that he loves you and I and this world so much that he is one day going to usher in a kingdom where these things will not be allowed. He's barring these things so that he can create a good world, the world that he intended. And then finally, Paul is describing behavior that is regularly acted upon. And this is maybe the biggest point that you need to see, at least for Paul's purposes today. This is not describing somebody who struggles with temptation, because we all struggle. This is not even describing somebody who occasionally gives in to sinful impulses, because I did and you did this week. We've all given in to sinful impulses, so it's not describing temptations or impulses or desires. Friends, hear me, and you've got to hear what Paul's saying here. He is saying that if you make your lifestyle, if you make your practice, your way of living things like this or general sin mentioned in scripture, then it's not just because you do bad things, but you're generally a good person. He's saying that at the core, you are bad. And that's why you do the bad that you do. And I know that that's actually highly unpopular to say that, but it is biblically true that your behavior stems, the fruit of your behavior stems from whatever root that you've been planted inside of. So here, Paul, clearly, he's saying, hey, don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't think otherwise to this. Don't be deceived. If your way of life is as a practice unrighteous or full of wrongdoing, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, period, full stop. Klein Snodgrass has a book called Who God Says You Are, and he kind of brings some color to this. He says this in that book. Let's get something straight from the beginning. If you do not act like a Christian, you are not a Christian. 
yes, I'm willing to die on that hill. There's no such thing as an identity that does not act. If you do not treat people, especially spouses and other family members, from and with Christian virtues, there is serious doubt that you are a Christian. And no, I do not believe in salvation by works, but I do know that faith involves attachment to and participation with Christ. And if that's the case, you cannot be attached to Christ without acting in accord with his character to some large extent. Identity informs behavior. And I just want to pause here and say, do you see the temptation for you and I to be self-deceived? Because even in this room, there's some of you are like, no, I don't believe that. And I would just ask you, don't wrestle with my words, wrestle with what the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit is offering us in this text, where he in love to the Corinthians is saying, hey, don't be, don't be deceived. You guys are acting just like the city. And if you act and live just like the city, it might mean that you still belong to the city and not to the kingdom of God. I uh, was on the phone this last week with a man who recently left our church, and he has consistently, for years and years, mistreated his wife. He's damaged his kids. He's consistently given himself over to porn and to sexual sin. He's consistently given himself over to lying and pretending to be one man around one group of people, but in reality being another person altogether consistently walked in various addictions to food and to alcohol. And yet on the phone, he told me these words. He said, I am not lost. I know where I'll go when I die. And then he turned it and he said, I'm right with God. You're actually the one who needs to get right with God. So we had a great conversation after that, as you can imagine. And the reality is like, it hit me in that moment. Man, I'm just like that. I'm just like that. Where a catalog of behavior, I'm so quick to just justify myself and go, yeah, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Friends, Paul is trying to get at us and say, hey, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't be so quick to self-justify. Don't be so quick to think that just because you walked an aisle as a kid or you prayed a prayer, or you've given a verbal profession of being a follower of Jesus, don't be so quick to just assume that you're okay and that you're fine and you actually are a Christian. Because if you live unrighteously, if you do wrongdoing, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. And so this is the first great temptation that every follower of Jesus faces. It's the temptation towards self-deception. My sin's not that big of a deal. God will overlook it. I don't really make a practice of this, but we actually do. And Paul, knowing who we are, Paul being wise and being a good pastor, he wants to then introduce to us another great temptation that every follower of Jesus is gonna face as he's saying the things that he's saying. And here's the second thing I want you to see. The second temptation that we face is the temptation towards self-condemnation. Here's what happens in a sermon like this. And this is one of the hazards of being a preacher. What happens in a sermon like this is there are people in the room who really need to hear this and they don't hear it. It goes over their head or totally misses their heart or they spend the entire time excusing or self-justifying. But there are other people in the room who probably don't need to hear this because they've got a humble, sensitive conscience. They're aware of their brokenness. They definitely feel their failures and their, their, the ways that they fall short. And they're constantly trying to live in confession and repentance. And God, would you search me and would you know me? And they hear a sermon like this and like, I knew it. I've never been a Christian. I've been faking this whole time, right? And they hear it in ways that they shouldn't hear it. 
This is the challenge with a sermon like this is that so often many of us go towards self-condemnation. You and I today came in hearing voices. If you knew how much the person sitting to your right or left talked to themselves, you would probably feel less crazy because we all talk to ourselves. And maybe the problem is that we spend too much time talking to ourselves and listening to ourselves and not enough time listening to what God actually says about us. Here's what happens in this space that some of you are like, you entered here today in this church and as, as the service has been unfolding, you've just had the thought of like, man, I'm not really feeling it today. I'm just not really feeling the presence of God today. Maybe it's because the sermon sucks and the preacher sucks and this church sucks, right? Maybe that's like what you're thinking. But some of you, it's dawned on you being here today that this is the first time you've thought about God all week. And then the voice comes. Who doesn't think about God all week? What type of Christian are you? That you would go your whole week and not even think about God until you step in, into the church? What kind of person are you? Or maybe you hear the voice when you're driving home from work and you start to think about some shameful part of your story, your past, that you would literally give anything to see removed from your story. I mean, if there was money in the world, if there was something you could do to get that removed from your past, you would do it. And you hear the voice say, yeah, you'll never be able to live that down. That's just who you really are. Some of you hear the voice say, man, just look at the mess in your life. Look at what you've done to your family. Look at what's happening all around you. If people really knew your story, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. Perhaps it's condemnation, from something that was done to you, you hear the voice say, yeah, it's because you're defective. You're wrong. There's something broken about you. That's why these things keep happening to you. Or maybe, maybe like many Christians that I know, you just live with a low hum, a buzz in the background of self-condemnation that says something to the effect of, God doesn't really love you. He loves the world in general, but when he thinks about you, love is not his primary emotion. When he when, when you close your eyes and you picture the face of God, he's not smiling, he's kind of perturbed. When you pop into his presence, he's annoyed, he's frustrated, he's angry because there are certain things about your life that you just can't get fixed and he's really, really upset about it. So yeah, he's got love for humanity in general, but he doesn't really love you. He may say he does, but he doesn't really feel love for you. Paul can barely stand to speak so harshly and clearly to the Corinthians without pausing and going, I can't go on without reminding you of the truth and the reality of the gospel. Notice what Paul does in verse 11 because he doesn't just stop at verse 10. He says, and such were some of you. What happened? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, friends, this is your story. That catalog of sins that we just went through, that's who we were. That's what we did. That's the way we lived. And it's not that we cleaned ourselves up. It's not that we tried to fix ourselves. It's not that we tried to present something to God so that he might learn to like us and put up with us one day. We were in darkness. We were dirty. And yet God in Christ, through his death and resurrection, he washed us. He transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness. He brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And you and I now, by his grace, have been justified. This is our story. 
And did you notice how passive you and I are in this process? We didn't do anything. The only thing that we contributed to this whole situation was our sin and our dysfunction and our brokenness. And it was in that place that we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified. God did this for us. That's why he talks about the kingdom of God being something that you inherit as opposed to being something that you earn. Nobody earns the kingdom of God. You inherit the kingdom of God. How do you inherit the kingdom? Well, just like you inherit anything else because you're a part of the family, so you now get the inheritance. Friends, we were once a part of the family of darkness and God has rescued us by his mercy and by his grace. Through Jesus's death and resurrection, you and I are now brought into the family of God. We're sons and we're daughters and we get to inherit the kingdom of God, not because of us, but because of his work on our behalf. John Stott says it this way. He says, many people visualize a God who sits comfortably on a distant throne, remote, aloof, uninterested, indifferent to the needs of mortals until it may be that they can badger him into taking action on their behalf. Such a view is wholly false. The Bible reveals a God who long before it even occurs to man to turn to him, while man is still lost in darkness and sunk in sin, takes the initiative, rises from his throne, lays aside his glory, and stoops to seek until he finds him. So listen, if you're banking your hope on Jesus today, if you know that it's not because of you and what you've done, but if your hope is on Jesus Christ today, please hear me. Stop listening to your own internal voice of self-condemnation and hear the word of God over you. In Christ, you are washed. That thing that you so desperately want, if you could go back in time and delete that part of your story, in Christ, it's deleted. It's washed it's gone. He separated it from his face as far as the east is from the west. You're washed. In Christ, you are sanctified. You have been literally set apart by God. He has taken you out of the way that you were living, and he has put you inside of his kingdom and his family to live an entirely different way. And friends, in Christ, you are justified. If you grew up in church, sometimes that was described as just as if I've never sinned. And that's fine and well, but it's so much more than that. It's more than just as if you've never sinned. To be justified means that the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that he lived in his earthly life through his death on a cross on your behalf, his right standing, his righteousness, who he is, is given to you as if you were him, as if you did the things that he did. So it's not just as if you've never sinned, but in Christ, it's just as if you've always done the right thing and thought were word and deed, and never one time done the wrong thing. And when the Father thinks of you, when the Father looks at you, when you pop into his presence, the way that he gets delighted over his son Jesus is the way that he gets delighted and in love with you. You are one in Christ. You are justified. The Father has, has slammed the gavel down and said, innocent and righteous, and he'll never dangle anything over your head again. You're a part of his family now. This is incredible, incredible news. This is why we sing songs like Before the Throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
because the sinless Savior died for me, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And that leads to the last thing I want you to see, which is the invitation. Here's the invitation from God. Become who you are. Become who you are. You could summarize the entire teaching of the New Testament and much of Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians with that phrase, become who you are in Christ. Here's what God has done for you. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. He's adopted you. He's set you apart. He's sanctified you. He's made you holy. He's made you righteous. Now live righteous lives. Live as forgiven, freed people. Live as those who are sons and daughters of a good father. Take on the family characteristics. If God looks this way and acts this way, if Jesus functioned and lived this way, take on your brother's characteristics. Become who you already are. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians again and again and again. Even last week, he's saying, hey friends, you're the future kings and queens and judges over the whole world. So act like it. You can't even handle trivial cases, but you're the judges, so become who you are. He goes on to say this. He says, you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, so learn to absorb the wrongdoing that's done against you now. You're going to inherit something that nobody can take from you. Live into who you are. Today, he's saying, you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You have been justified. Now live into that reality now. Become who you already are. This is what the, the, the Christian journey is all about. You can summarize the entire Christian journey between now and either you die or Jesus comes back as you and I learning how to become who we are in Christ. So where do we go from here? Well, very quickly, I wanna, I wanna invite you to reject all versions of grace that don't lead to behavioral change. Reject all versions of grace that don't lead to behavioral change. I love the gospel-centered movement. I love that like when I grew up in the church, we hardly ever talked about the gospel. And now you turn around and it's like gospel-centered parenting and gospel-centered marriage and gospel-centered singleness. And here's how to have a gospel-centered job. And here's how to you know mow your lawn in a gospel-centered way. And it's like, there's gospel-centered everything. Praise God for that. The more the merrier. But let's not forget that grace isn't licensed to do whatever the heck we want to do. That real grace, if it's grace at all, changes us from the inside out. And yeah, it's slow. Yeah, it takes a long time. And my gosh, we're busted up. Look at the Corinthian church. But notice what Paul said about them, right? So listen, reject all versions of grace that don't lead to real change. Look at what Titus 2.11 says about grace and let this shape your vision of what grace is all about. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, verse 12 is massive, and training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. Why? And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Friends, good works are the natural outcome of receiving the radical, crazy, disruptive grace of God in your life. I love the words of Gordon Fee. He says, for Paul, there is to be the closest possible relationship between the experience of grace and one's own behavior that evidences that experience of grace. 
Those who concern themselves with grace without equal concern for behavior have missed Paul's own theological urgencies by several furlongs. Furlongs is just a really nerdy way of saying football fields. He says, it is precisely for these reasons that the warning texts in Paul must be taken with real seriousness. Security in Christ there is, to be sure, but it is a false security that would justify sinners who have never taken seriously, but such were some of you. That is to whitewash the sinner without regeneration or transformation. And Paul simply would not understand such theology. So you got to do a self-assessment. You and I have to approach this text with honesty, integrity, and ask ourselves, is there a tragic gap between my profession and my behavior? Is there a tragic gap? Am I living unrighteously? Am I living as a wrongdoer? Do I live just like my friends who don't know Jesus? If the answer is yes, if your approach to sex, money, possessions, time, your body, your marriage, your singleness, your relationships, if your approach to life, your job, everything is the same as your non-Christian neighbor, you need to ask yourself the question, have I really been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness or am I self-deceived? The last thing I want you to see is this. Take heart. All Christians are washed and waiting. One of my favorite books is a book by the name of Washed and Waiting from Wesley Hill. And it's his book where he talks about his own struggle with sin and actually how, yeah, he's been washed, but his life isn't fully redeemed yet. And so he's looking for the day, he's holding out hope for the the day when Jesus comes back to make all things new. And I just wanna say along with Wesley Hill, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're all washed and we're all waiting. So take heart, take heart in the waiting. You're not a finished product, but God will finish what he has started with you that he's not gonna throw you away. He's not gonna abandon you. He's not like other people in your life who are gonna give up. He is committed in love to seeing you through to completion. You are washed now, that's true, and nothing can take that away, not even the waiting, and he will do that one day. He will come and complete what he started. So with with that in mind, let's stand together.